the last time we met two weeks ago, we began to finally close out the letter to the Colossians, going through those final greetings and the list of colleagues that have joined Paul while he's in prison in Rome. It is in these closing verses that we see what I would say are precepts that regulate Christian relationships. In Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, we were able to examine Paul's relationships with two individuals, Tychicus and Onesimus. Both of those were Gentiles of varying backgrounds. One was a slave, the other was not. One had long ago come to Christ and was now a leader in the church, while the other is a recent convert and in one sense seems to have been alienated from the church by his own disobedience. But from them, from those people, we learned something important. We learned that all Christians are connected through Christ. That was the first precept. This morning we learned the second precept, that Christian relationships reflect Christ. And so I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. And I want to bring to you a message, the continuation of this series that I've titled Precepts for Christian Relationships. And please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, he greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the, all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea, and to Nympha, and to the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. <coughs> Remember my chains. Grace be with you. You may be seated. I know of a man who was asked to help plant a church. He was an African-American man, and that distinction becomes very important because the person that asked him to help plant the church was an Asian-American. The Asian man approached my African-American friend and said, I, I want to plant a culturally diverse church with you. And my friend said, are you sure? Do you know what you are asking? 
the reality is the ability of those two cultures to get along has always been difficult. In a church setting, it's difficult because each culture has its own characteristics, has its own mentality, and they even have different values. And so the ability to operate a church was going to be difficult. But the man was certain. And he says, yes, I know exactly what I'm asking. I'm asking you to glorify God with me by bringing together two very different groups of people. It is a risk, but one that we are willing to take on behalf of the Lord. Those are true words. Relationships, indeed, are risky. They are a risky venture because they call upon individuals to invest something more than money or more than property and, and material wealth. Relationships call upon us to risk ourselves. A person will have to risk their emotions. They risk their character. And ultimately, they risk who they are. Of great concern is the fact that the risk is higher than material wealth. If the market collapses, you've only risked and perhaps lost your money. But if the relationship collapses, a person risks their entire being. The chances of a relationship failing are actually quite high. All we need to do is look at the disagreement and the discord and the distance that separates the people of today. But the reward of that relationship is much greater as well. Because each of the individual gains something out of it. But that's not the only reason. But also because the Lord gains something out of it. He is glorified in a world that rejects his glory. There's a great difference between worldly relationships and heavenly relationships, though. Those in the world, they're permitted to choose who they will surround themselves with, who they will build a relationship with. And frequently, most people will surround themselves with people that they like, and they like them because they're just like themselves. They think like them, they behave like them, and often they have the same ideology as them. But for believers, we don't have that option. We don't get to choose who we surround ourselves with. The Lord does that for us by making the gospel available to anyone and to everyone. Whoever walks through the doors of this church, as an example, are part of the Lord's plan. And we are called upon to receive them. We don't get to reject someone because we don't like their haircut or their clothes. We don't get to refuse someone because their interests are different than our own. And we don't get to renounce someone because they have different political beliefs. Our relationships are chosen for us because God has chosen to make the gospel not exclusive. We see this in the closing verses of Colossians chapter 4. Paul compiles a list here of, of 12 people who have been part of his ministry in some way or another. And those 12 people are very, very different. Some are Gentiles and some are Jews. They come from various family situations. They have different occupations. We see pastors and elders. We see doctors. We even have a runaway slave that we talked about two weeks ago. And they have different testimonies. Those who were both faithful and unfaithful are listed here, actually. The variety of individuals encompassed 
by just these few verses demonstrates to us the power of the gospel to influence and reach into every sphere of life and transform individuals from any background. Surrounding Paul in this text is a variety of people, and what we'll see, conflict still occurred. But the risk of that relationship amongst those people resulted not in superficial relationships, but in relationships that were sanctified and thus glorified the Lord. The reality is that for Christians, because they are connected in Christ, their relationships must also reflect Christ. <clears throat> this is a reality that we see here by examining the relationships of Paul. Already we've made acquaintance with Tychicus and Onesimus, as I said. But now in verses 10 and 11, we're told of three more people, Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus, who is called Justice. If we work backwards, we quickly take note of, of who these individuals are. And we begin first with Jesus. El Can Sorry. <laughs> if you notice when I read these verses, <laughs> I always struggle on verse 11, and it's because the names are the same in English and Spanish. So my mind switches. <laughs> I want to say Jesus and Justus. Um, I don't know that I've ever switched in the middle of a sermon, though. <laughs> so we look, and we see Jesus, and we see the change of his name from Jesus to justice. I have to be intentional about thinking about that. That change indicates that he's a Jew. That point's going to be confirmed in verse 11. But we know that he's a Jew also from the name change. It's a common practice for Jews that once they became followers of Christ, they would change their name. But this is especially true for somebody who's named Jesus. Jesus. Because for a believer, the name Jesus is associated with the Messiah. And there can only be one Messiah. And so he changes his name to Justice. Which means what? Justice. As in justice or just. Literally, it means righteous. Apart from that, I can't tell you anything about the guy. We know that he sends greetings to the churches, though. But we have no other information about who this is. And so we leave it at that. And then we have John Mark. He's noted as Barnabas's cousin here, and happens to be the author of the Gospel of Mark. We'll discuss him more in just a little bit, so there's no need to spend much time here on him. But then we arrive, and finally, or rather firstly, Paul mentions Aristarchus here in verse 10. And there are some important details to notice about him. First, we see that Aristarchus has obviously served together with, Christ, with, with Paul for Christ. He's originally from Thessalonica. We see that in Acts 27. And here he has served together with Paul for Christ on the third missionary journey. Just like Tychicus then in verse 7, Aristarchus has endured with Paul. That is to say, he has suffered with Paul for the sake of Christ. 
He was part of that same contingent that we read about in Acts 20, verse 4, that delivered the offering to the church in Jerusalem. But that's not before he and Gaius were arrested together in Ephesus during the riot in Acts chapter 19. Something else we read about during our scripture reading two weeks ago. As a result, they, they suffered together, Paul and Aristarchus. And as a result of that, they have shared experiences together. And ultimately, they've been sanctified together for Christ. Look at something then. Two weeks ago, we looked at Tychicus and Onesimus. We learned that believers are connected to Christ, connected together in Christ. And what we said at that time was that believers serve together for Christ. Believers suffer together for Christ. Believers share experiences together for Christ. And ultimately, believers are sanctified together for Christ. The relationship between Paul and Aristarchus shows exactly what we learned last week from Paul's relationship with others. And now we move to our text. And we learn that because believers are connected in Christ, their relationships reflect Christ's character. Together, Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice join to send their greetings to the church in Colossae. Note the text says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, and Jesus, who is called Justice. And so I want you to note first, and if you're taking notes in the bulletin, at the very top, it should have had this phrase, to reflect Christ's relationships between believers. And then we learn first that believers express Christ's affection through greeting. Believers reflect Christ in their relationships. And because of that, they do so by expressing Christ's affection through greeting. For some people, greeting is just a form of proper etiquette. Think about the fact that when we try to raise up our children, the very first thing we do, one of the first habits, is we try to introduce our children and instill into them the need for a proper introduction from a very young age. We tell them to make eye contact, to be polite, and to speak up. But a proper greeting serves more than just fulfilling proper etiquette. A greeting is an intentional act, an act to acknowledge someone's presence. Basically, by greeting, we're saying, I know you're there, and you, you matter to me. The greeting one person gives, or maybe doesn't give, it's an expression of the relationship between those individuals. It may change based on how familiar two people are, the greeting I give my wife is going to be different than the greeting I give all of you. But the intention to acknowledge a person's presence is going to be the same. But from a Christian perspective, for believers, the greeting takes on a more significant spiritual meaning. Because when we greet a fellow believer, we're not just acknowledging their presence. We're not just acknowledging another human we're reaching out to a fellow image bearer. This is someone who, like us, has been created by an almighty God. And when he created that person like us, he created that person in his own image. And so a greeting then is not just saying, I know you're here and, and you matter to me. A greeting is now saying, 
You are here because God created you, and you matter to him. <coughs> the greetings we see are spread throughout all the letters in the New Testament, and they become a reflection of a person's love for another, ultimately because they love God. And that's what we see in the greeting here to the body of Christ represented in Colossae. <coughs> we see this elsewhere. We would look at the magnitude, though, specifically displayed in the letter to the Philippians. And reading the final verses of the epistle, we, we look at what it says. And Paul writes, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, with your spirit. That first sentence, verse 21, elevates the greeting spiritually by saying, greet every saint in Christ, in Christ Jesus even. A proper Christian greeting is done in Christ, reflecting who people are in Christ. And then notice who he greets or who greets whom. All the ones that are with Paul Greet all who are in the church. It's doubtful that everyone knew each other. Certainly some individuals may have met each other at one point, but to think that every individual with Paul knows every individual in the church just seems infeasible. But being connected in Christ, again, our point from two weeks ago, being connected in Christ by itself creates this significant enough bond that they want to greet one another in the name of Christ. I suspect the same is true here in our text in Colossians. Some may have known one another. We know Onesimus at least knows one person there. But it's doubtful that everybody in Rome knows everybody in Colossae. And yet their bond in Christ, it causes them to send greetings to one another. I like how one of the better Greek lexicons actually describes the greeting at this time, saying it is a hospitable recognition. A hospitable recognition. While capturing the idea that when we greet one another, it is a means of recognizing that individual, that idea, hospitable recognition, it goes further, and it conveys a sincerity and a kindness in the greeting by describing it as hospitable. In recent weeks, I've been conversing with a friend of mine down south, a fellow pastor in Louisiana, who even today has been trying to rebuild his church and, and make it usable, literally, after a hurricane damaged and flooded it three or four years ago. And so we were talking and we were conversing, and I shared with him that I would be meeting um, for a couple of days with another husband and wife that he knew that were mutual friends. And very quickly when he learned that, he said, please send my greetings to them. In fact, he even qualified and said, I really love them. And then he proceeded to share some high points of his relationship with those people. He shared the, the, the stories of their relationship through the years. This was not a meaningless, send my greetings, hi, how are you? It was a hospitable recognition of them. It was ex expressing his affection for them, born out of a sincere love and connection in Christ. 
And so believers reflect Christ in their relationship by expressing Christ's affection through greeting. But Aristarchus is not the only one who sends greetings. We notice that the text also identifies Mark as well. It should be a surprising name for us to read. It may not be surprising for the Colossians. In fact, it seems that the Colossians don't know who he is because Paul has to identify him and identify him as the cousin of Barnabas. So it seems Barnabas is more known there than Mark. But for us, for readers of the New Testament, this name is surprising because we know the history between Paul and Mark. And so it's unexpected to read Mark's name here and see that Mark is all of a sudden here with Paul in prison in Rome. That situation tells us something very critical about the relationship between believers. We see that because Christians are connected in Christ, they reflect Christ in their relationship by expressing Christ's grace through reconciliation. Because they're connected in Christ, believers reflect Christ in their relationships by expressing grace through reconciliation. We find Mark first setting sail with Paul in Acts 13 in the first missionary journey. In fact, go there in your Bibles. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 marks a major transition in the book. At this point, James, the brother of John, has been martyred. Peter now sits in prison. And so the ministry for the Lord that has gone on for so many years through Peter, so long through Peter, now must find a new contender for the faith. That contender is the Apostle Paul, whose own testimony and conversion is seen in Acts chapter 9. Now from here in Acts 13 through the rest of the book of Acts, we now find Paul as a primary influencer for the gospel in this region. Bound to Christ, now Paul binds his labor to Christ as well. So that all that he has done, or all that he will do, he does so with the ambition of spreading the Lord's message. And that's what we find in Acts chapter 13. Together, Paul and Barnabas were commissioned for the Lord's service in verses 2 and 3. But look first at the last verse of chapter 12. It says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And so now we have John Mark here, the same one mentioned in Colossians. Before setting sail on the first missionary journey, the first of three, Paul and Barnabas agreed to bring Mark with them. And so then when we get to Acts chapter 13, verse 13, it says that Paul and his companions set sail, and those companions include Barnabas and Mark. And they've gone off together even with some others. But immediately something happens. Because in that same verse, look at verse 13 of chapter 13, what does it say? Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and come to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. John Mark just leaves them. It doesn't say why. 
but it certainly doesn't speak positively of Mark's actions. And Paul definitely seems to take exception to this because it's severe enough to cause a disagreement between him and Barnabas later on. We read of it this morning in our scripture reading of Acts 15. In fact, turn a couple chapters and look at that. Acts chapter 15. Shortly after the critical Jerusalem council, Paul determines to set out again. And so Acts 15, 36 describes it for us. And it says, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. But then notice what happens in the next verses, beginning verse 38. But Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn, John Mark, from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Whatever happened, whatever caused John Mark to leave and desert them earlier on in Acts 13, it was severe enough for, for Paul and Barnabas to disagree about Mark's suitability to come with them on a later trip. And yet now, in Colossians, in our text, John Mark is at Paul's side again. What happened? What changed? Realistically, we know very few details, but we do know a couple of aspects. Notably, John Mark has been with Peter. He's been discipled by Peter at this point, and Peter mentions him when he sends greetings from his first epistle, <clears throat> saying, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. So Mark is with Peter, and by that indication of my son, Peter seems to be a spiritual father who is discipling. That is both the effect and the power of God's grace. It brings about reconciliation. And that's what we see here between Paul and Mark. Despite the severity and the sharpness of their falling out, it's not animosity that defines their relationship, but instead it is the grace of God that defines their relationship. Does that surprise anyone? It shouldn't. Both Paul and Mark profess to have a relationship with God, a relationship that is built upon God's grace through reconciliation. And so both as a means to reflect God's grace and also because they have received God's grace themselves, it shouldn't be doubtful to us that both Paul and Mark are going to seek to magnify that grace in their relationship with one another. That's the great truth about our relationships. Our human relationships reflect our divine relationship. Our relationship with one another reflects our relationship with God. I don't know how the reconciliation came between Paul and John Mark, but I know two things. First, in obedience to the Lord, it had to happen. They had to reconcile. 
To live dis a disconnected life from fellow believers is to live disconnected from the will of God. It's written in scripture, as much as depends upon you, live at peace with one another. In setting forth principles for biblical counseling, Jay Adams sets forth some presuppositions. These things, these foundational principles that have to be true in order for biblical counseling to take place and for a heart change to take place. One of those principles, he simply words like this, interpersonal problems between Christians must be solved. That's it. It's basic, it's fundamental, it's what we see in scripture. And so it shouldn't surprise us that John, Mark, and Paul reconcile because that's God's desire. And he desires that because it is for his glory and for their good. The second thing I know to be true is though it was God's will, it was hard. Every facet of relationships is hard. And do you know why they're hard? Because the people we're called to love are sinners. The people we're called to be reconciled with are sinners. And it's made more difficult by the fact that we ourselves are sinners. Whether between husbands and wives, parents and children, with our friends, with our family, whatever it may be, relationships are difficult. And I'm certain it took work for Paul and Mark to reconcile, as it would for any of us. Think of a story in my own life where I met with a group of elders, and these elders, unfortunately, were concerned more about being right than doing right. And in trying to work through something, some very harsh things were said. At a time, that time, it was definitely more immature. I could have let my anger get the better of me, and in some ways it did. I'm sure, and I know I said and did some things I shouldn't have. But I was angry enough by what was said, I remember Bethany reaching over and actually grabbing my hand to kind of hold me back. I would have never expected fellow Christians to act the way they did. And it created this rift between us for a long time until finally, it was probably about a year later, trying to figure out how to solve this, because I knew something had to happen. At a conference together, I pulled the elder chairman aside and said, we need to talk. We need to have a conversation. The things you said were really hurtful and unhelpful. It was a difficult conversation to have. And it wasn't just one conversation. We had to have other conversations. But that one conversation set forth in process an open opportunity to share. And yet eventually we were reconciled. I dare say it was to the glory of God. Though they are difficult, our relationships with one another are a means to reflect our relationship with God. And that's what I was trying to achieve there. And so because we're connected in Christ, we reflect Christ in our relationships by expressing grace through reconciliation. We now come to these parentheses in our text. And there Paul seems to add as an afterthought about Mark. He just says, concerning him, Mark, you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. 
Somehow, the Colossian church has received instructions about Mark. They've already see, received news that Mark is on his way. He's going to come. And they've been given instructions about his arrival. Again, we, we have no idea what those instructions were. <clears throat> but the last part of the verse says, welcome him. Those words reveal much about the New Testament and how it functioned and cared for fellow believers. Rather than find a place and expend God's resources for a place to stay, it shows believers are opening their homes to one another. And so what we see is that through their relationships, believers express Christ's love or Christ's goodness through hospitality. They show Christ's character through hospitality. <coughs> when Christ sent out the disciples in Luke chapter 9, he tells them to go preach and heal, but take nothing with you. Rather, stay with the people. And if the people will not receive you, then, then leave. That becomes a standard for the New Testament era. <coughs> By commending Gaius' hospitality to the itinerant workers, even though they were strangers, John gives instructions about this in his third epistle. He writes to Gaius in verses 5 through 8. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. It's the same meaning in Colossians when they're told to receive Mark. Hospitably, they are to receive him. Interestingly enough, in Acts chapter 12, we get an example from Mark's own mother, in which she received Peter into her home during Peter's ministry. See, not only is a function of the church, this not only is this the function of the church during the day, but... It shows the impact of Christ on human relationships. Having been well-received by God into his family, and one day well-received by Christ into his heavenly home, believers hospitably receive one another well into our earthly homes. For this reason, we see it as one of the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Among all these list of qualifications, one of those is be hospitable. This is an important trait for the Christian church and the Christian person. Hospitality is not just about having a meal together. It's an opportunity to show the character of Christ. In our call to worship this morning, just as an example, Psalm 145, verse 9, we read of the Lord's character. And it was said that, he is good. Hospitality is a means for us to show that goodness. This is the structure of our relationships, to express goodness through hospitality. Think for a moment about how the book of Acts ends. We know that it ends with Paul in prison in Rome, and we know that because that's where he's writing this letter to the Colossians. But do you know what the last two verses say in Acts 28? They read this. Verses 30 and 31. <clears throat> he, being Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense. And he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. 
This is hospitality. Even in prison, Paul welcomes all who visit him. And it says he does so at his own expense. But it's also purposeful. It's not just for a good time, but verse 31 says it's to continue teaching about Christ. I know of an elder in a church who exemplifies this well. What he does is he invites visitors to have lunch with him. So what he and his family do is before church, every Sunday, they prepare a meal. And then they bring it to church and, and they open up the, the kitchen and, and the fellowship room, which are meant for frequent use. And then they invite visitors to have lunch with them afterwards. Or sometimes, it's, whether it's believers or unbelievers, but sometimes it's even church members they don't know or who are a little more reclusive. And then they sit down together and share. One person writes of this, sitting down with someone and sharing your life and faith while learning of their life of faith, or perhaps lack of faith. It offers precious opportunities to witness, to evangelize, and to disciple. And so believers reflect Christ in their relationships by expressing Christ's love or Christ's goodness through hospitality. Finally, looking at the last verse of our text, I want you to consider that Christian relationships reflect Christ when they express Christ's comfort through unity. Paul's written of Aristarchus and John Mark and, and Justice. And then about him he writes, These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. This is a unique text in several ways, beginning with the fact that Paul identifies these as Jewish. But he also seems disappointed that, that there aren't more Jews with him. But at the same time, he also says they've been a comfort to him, which is also unique. Remember that though Paul was called to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, Paul is a Jew himself. He still has a heart for his own people. Romans chapter 9, he captures this well, writing to the Romans. It says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He's speaking about his own people, that he has a great sorrow for them and unceasing anguish. And then speaking again of them, he says, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ. For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, that is Israel. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. If you go to chapter 10, you'll see this even more, that Paul maintains a great love for his people. But his commitment to Christ, it's alienated him from those very people. I dare say that this probably describes some of our relationships with our families who are unbelievers. For Paul, the Jews have turned against him despite being his own people. In Acts chapter 19, they riot against him. And to the Philippians, Paul writes that even while he's in prison, they're seeking to afflict him. Being rejected by his own people is one thing, but to be rejected and have them turn against him so forcefully and so violently... No doubt that's got to be discouraging and disheartening for Paul. And so he writes, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. He said, there are no others. It's just these three. 
But then he speaks positively of these three, and he says, they have been a comfort to me. That word comfort is unique in the New Testament because it's only found here, and it's meant relief or consolation. The issue is not that the people have rejected Paul. The issue is that they seem to have rejected Christ. And yet, though they've turned away from Christ, Paul's consolation is that some, Aristarchus, John Mark, and Justice, they've been united with him in Christ. And they've determined to defend Christ, even if it costs them the relationship with their own people as well. This is what Christ does to human relationships. Where division and discord may have reigned, Christ unites people behind a common mission to serve him and a common goal to glorify him. And that unity brings comfort, we see here. Think about what happens when sinners serve together under their own authority. Motivated by their own self-interest, all that they do serves that common goal of serving themselves. And so when you have two people serving their own interest, all they're going to do is push back against one another or pull apart. And you get automatic division. So what happens then when you have a large group? I don't know, like a church. With each person serving their own ambitions, what happens? You get divisions. You get strife. At best, it's uncomfortable. But believers fall under Christ's authority. And they are united, not by what they want, but by what Christ wants. And so then their ambitions are united. And the result is encouragement, not comfort. Because when we're united in Christ, we're not divided against one another. We're working together for the same purpose. We're united. And that united front then brings comfort because it assures us that we're living in Christ's plan. If all of us are working together, we know that we're marching forth on Christ's plan. At the same time, it gives us knowledge and hope that we're serving Christ's will. And finally, we're comforted by the assurance that we're walking in Christ's obedience. And so believers reflect Christ in their relationships when they express Christ's comfort through unity. It's hard to relate to people who are different than us. But the Lord's call to the body of the church, to the body of Christ, is that they come together as many individuals as one body. I told you the story of the friend who was asked to plant a multicultural church. And he, as he concludes it or describes it, he would tell you it's one of the most wonderful things to see many people who were so very different come together. And it wasn't just African Americans or Asian Americans. They ended up with people from all kinds of cultures. And he says it simply this way, brother, it is a glorious thing to watch. To reflect Christ within relationships is difficult. Because it means we can't be first. But it also means the other person can't be first. To reflect Christ within our relationships means Christ has to be first. If we're to be truthful, I think most of us stumble through our relationships. It's much easier to avoid relationships than to put the work needed to cultivate God-honoring relationships. In those cases, when we are most struggling to honor God in our relationships, we must submit to him in prayer, asking for his guidance, 
And then we ask ourselves, how would I relate to Christ? Relationships, indeed, are risky investments. Yet, it is there that the Lord has called us to invest our time. Teaching, admonishing, discipling, and so on. And so because believers are connected in Christ, their relationships reflect Christ's character. And what we see here, because, because of that, believers reflect Christ when our relationships express Christ's affection through greeting, when they express Christ's grace through reconciliation, and when they express Christ's love through hospitality, and when they express Christ's comfort through unity. And so we have to ask ourselves, do our relationships reflect the character of my flesh? Or do my relationships reflect the character of Christ's sacrifice? Let's pray. Our Father God, we spoke much of your goodness, Lord. And in Father, we see that goodness in our lives and in our relationships. Our greatest privilege is to have a relationship with you. Our greatest honor is to reflect you in our earthly relationships. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to bring our relationships underneath your authority, that they may reflect your son's character. May our relationships be not for our gratification, but may they always be for your glory. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.